I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. How will it end? For any of us following the Mueller investigation, hanging on the latest leaks around the mood inside the White House and who might get fired or not fired, the wonder of what's next is relentless. The possibilities seem endless. That's why for many of us, we're getting a crash course in constitutional law, indeed in the Constitution itself, seeing in real time how and whether our government works. What happens if Robert Mueller gets fired? Can he be? What about Rod Rosenstein? What does a constitutional crisis look like? What does it even mean? No need to worry. Asha Rangappa can explain. As you likely know, Asha is a frequent CNN contributor and senior lecturer at Yale's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, where she teaches national security law and related courses. But as you'll hear, Asha's personal story is extraordinary and would make for a fascinating conversation just on its own. Asha is the Indian-American daughter of immigrants and speaks fluent Spanish. She was a Fulbright scholar and took that opportunity to Bogota, Colombia. Where else, right? There, Asha studied Colombian constitutional reform and its impact on U.S. drug policy. After Yale Law School, she clerked in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Following that stint, Asha went on to do what any Princeton and Yale graduating, Fulbright-winning, federal court clerking person would do. She joined the FBI as a special agent and later served as associate dean at Yale Law School. Sorry, I realize you likely now feel lousy about yourself. So do I. To make it worse, as you'll hear in our conversation, Asha's also really funny and smart and totally personable. I hate her. But I do think you'll love the podcast. Before I begin the conversation with Asha, though, I want to remind you about our show's sponsor, The Cook Political Report. Just a guess, but you might have heard. Paul Ryan's retiring. What in the world does that mean for the midterm election map and that blue wave? What about other issues like tariffs, immigration, and guns? People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to The Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News's Bob Schieffer called it the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver noted, few political analysts have a longer track record of success than the tight-knit team that runs the Cook Political Report. Little wonder the New York Times called it, quote, a newsletter that both parties regard as authoritative. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com to sign up. That's cookpolitical.com and one last item. Thank you to everyone who takes the time to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. It makes a big difference, and I'm really grateful for the ratings and the comments from people like Big Bob D., who wrote, I always like listening to this podcast. It's a treat when I get in my car for the drive to work and see there's a new episode available. Thanks, Big Bob D. Very glad to help on your commute. That's when I listen to my favorite podcasts, too. And there was this from TXWV, who wrote, Great interviews with none of the BS. Thanks, TXWV. I also hate BS, so let me get past this BS and make my ask so we can start the interview. If you like these conversations, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. As always, though, if you don't like the conversations, well, thanks for still listening, but please just forget that whole rate and review thing. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Asha Rangappa. Asha, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. 
Thanks for having me. So I'm not going to lie. Your story, I mean, don't you feel like you hear this narrative all the time? Indian American daughter earns Fulbright scholarship, graduates one of the world's great law schools, clerks for the U.S. Court of Appeals, joins FBI, of course, then takes leadership (laughs) positions at Alma Mater and Institute for Global Affairs. I mean, come on, Asha. At this point, it's, it's really a cliche, don't you think? It's it's a little cliche, though. I have to say, my parents are still sad that I didn't become a doctor. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, if we can't <laughs> if we can't disappoint our parents, what's the point of the whole thing? Exactly. Exactly. And not to get all superhero here, but uh, I think the most impressive thing I read was where you did your FBI training just weeks after a car crash put you in the hospital. That's right. Yeah, that was a tough time, but it was good. It was good. It it uh, it taught me a lot. The training or the doing training. it after the car or, or after the car to, crash? I had to really rally to, to get through it after that because I had a rib injury going into Quantico. And, you know, Quantico isn't a place where they coddle you. No, so, no. yeah. Um, so now, you know, it was it was a great experience and uh, I'm kind of glad for it, though. It was tough at the time. Yeah. I, I mean, I cracked a rib once in a soccer game and that night ended up watching Little Miss Sunshine, the comedy. And I, I mean, that was too much pain for me. So if you had rib injuries and went through Quantico, um, <laughs> I'm like incredibly impressed. I couldn't even make it through a comedy movie with uh, <laughs> with a rib injury, but I'm kind of soft that way. So um, let, let's uh, let's get into it. I'm a little concerned about this conversation because the way news moves, um, this whole thing might be obsolete by the time we hang up. Um, but but let's go for it anyhow. Um, can a sitting president be indicted? That is an open constitutional question. What what, mo- what most scholars say is no, that what the Constitution sets out, the fact that it lays out a procedure for impeachment and removal essentially means that that's the exclusive remedy while he's in office. It doesn't mean that he can never be charged, but that you would have to impeach and remove him and then charge him with a crime. And that is currently the adopted policy of the Department of Justice. But there is a minority view among legal scholars that a sitting president can be indicted. In fact, I believe that Kenneth Starr drafted a memo uh, that a sitting president could be indicted, which would have been very convenient for him, obviously. Yeah. So, um, you know, we have fortunately not had to test that. No. And sometimes it's just better that way. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yes, it, it could be better. And, and we'll talk as well. Um, obviously, Mueller has indicated, or there's been reporting that Mueller has indicated that uh, he may generate a report. And, and you've written a little bit about that. And I want to I want to ask you on that. One one other thing that you wrote um, way back in December, um, lifetimes ago. I know, right? uh, it, but but has has aged um, particularly well, unlike uh, many things that folks have written. Not you, of course. Um, and that was your piece: um, why it's far worse for Trump to fire Rosenstein than to fire Mueller. Um, Rosenstein, obviously the deputy uh, AG Mueller uh, and responsible for Mueller's investigation. These topics, will Rosenstein go? Will Mueller go? Who is Trump going to fire next? Will he fire anybody? It's, a, you know, obviously much of the talk of the day. Um, you know, I, I read that piece. So like any good lawyer, I know the answer to the question, but it's better coming from you. Um, why is it worse for Trump to fire Rosenstein? So it's better for Trump to fire Rosenstein for a couple of reasons. First, the special counsel regulations are designed 
to the reason that they they contemplate the appointment of a special counsel is precisely for situations like this. They had Watergate in mind. And so you want to have an independent investigation. So the regulations for the firing of Mueller include specific grounds that there need to you know, that Rosenstein needs to find in order to fire him. He has to report it to Congress. And the goal there is to make firing very difficult, uh, to make it public, to make it transparent so the president can't kind of do it behind closed doors. With Rosenstein, it would still be public, but he doesn't have to necessarily meet the criteria that are set forth in the special counsel regulations. And more importantly, if you read the special counsel regulations, you realize that Mueller has to go to Rosenstein to get approval for significant steps in his investigation. This was put in to avoid some of the runaway train aspects of the independent counsel statute and what we saw with Kenneth Starr. So, for example, this recent raid um, or search warrant that was executed on Michael Cohen was approved by Rosenstein. Hmm. If, If Trump is able to put someone who is less on board with Mueller's investigation, that person can kind of push back in a way that won't be very obvious to people. It will look like Mueller is still in place and Trump will be able to say, look, I didn't touch Mueller. But meanwhile, he could put someone there who doesn't approve significant steps, says, no, you can't follow those lines of inquiry. No, I'm not going to expand your mandate and, you know, may even cut back funding, for example, especially the uh, deputy attorney general in this case, um, who's overseeing it, has the power to determine budget. And so, so there are a lot of ways that the person who replaces Rosenstein can rein in the investigation in a way that wouldn't be obvious to the average person. And a little bit on this point, you tweeted uh, earlier today on uh, Solicitor General Noel Francisco. I mean, we have all seen, particularly since the number three went away, that the Solicitor General would be next in line, I guess, if the Deputy Attorney General gets let go or you know it goes away. And, and you tweeted that um, Francisco steps into Deputy Attorney General's shoes if Rosenstein is fired. The Solicitor General is the government's rep in front of the Supreme Court, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he has a lot of – I guess this is about Francisco. He has a lot of professional cred to preserve – unlikely to thwart Mueller for POTUS, for the president of the United States. That's mm-hmm. analysis that I I just haven't really seen much on Francisco. Um, so why do you say that? How, how did you come to that uh, conclusion? Well, I mean, I'm, it's not clear to me whether he kind of simultaneously holds these roles where he, you know, on the one hand is going in and arguing in front of the Supreme Court and then meanwhile checks in, you know, Mueller checks in with them every now and then. But Being the Solicitor General of the Supreme Court is an incredibly prestigious position. Um, And more importantly, it it comes with it a certain responsibility. The reason that I included in the tweet that the Solicitor General is known as the 10th Justice is that the court kind of views the Solicitor General as almost a friend of the court who's there to advise them Hmm. um, as much, you know, as much as being a party or adversary to the other you know, person in that case. Um, so there's a lot of trust involved with this other branch of government, um, with the judiciary, uh, so much so that actually sometimes the, the solicitor general will confess error on a, on a government policy and just say, actually, we have it wrong, um, as opposed to zealously defending it. That happens in rare instances. But my point in, in saying that is, you know, 
as a lawyer, that is a pinnacle of a career and, and to have that in front of the Supreme Court. And if what what Trump is expecting is someone to do what I just outlined, uh, kind of without basis, um, you know, throw obstacles in Mueller's way that would later potentially come to light uh, because he either has reporting requirements to Congress to explain his decisions or because they get documented somewhere. You know, that's a high reputational cost. And, and as you know, I'm being a lawyer um, for any lawyer, but I think especially for someone who's holding that position and who needs to go into that body and be believed. Do you happen to know Francisco at all? Have you ever worked I with him? I don't know him no. personally. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. Um, but I, I know, you know, having worked in government, I think yeah. that particularly in those positions, I think people take their responsibilities quite seriously. Now, you have also been, I would say, less, it appears, my, my interpretation, less worried, um, you know, everyone's worried, or many people are worried that, uh, you know, feel that the Mueller, the folks who feel that the Mueller investigation needs to progress to its logical end, you know, folks worry that, of course, that um, Trump will do something to stop it, firing folks, uh, you know, whatever he, he may do. You've spoken how um, once the wheels of justice start turning, they keep turning. And kind of the, the point that I've taken from your commentary that, yes, you know, those things may occur, but justice is moving and, you know, once on its way, it's really, really, really hard to stop. And and I would characterize you as having been more calming on that front than others. So why do you say that? Um, should the folks who are worrying just relax? I don't think that it's that they just need to relax. Obviously, it's alarming. It is a constitutional crisis if the president fires Mueller or Rosenstein, because what he's saying is, I don't respect the rule of law. However, I do think that our institution, um, our Department of Justice and the FBI are designed so that precisely so that no one person holds the reins for everything and without them, nothing can move forward. I mean, you know, Mueller could get hit by a bus tomorrow. Um, these investigations would still need to continue. Now, obviously, there are these layers of approval, as I have mentioned, that that kind of make them go on. But what people don't also realize is that there are regulations within the Department of Justice called the Attorney General Guidelines. There is actually an investigative uh, guide um, called the DIAG, the uh, the Domestic Investigations Operations Guide, which basically lay out step by step exactly what needs to be done in every investigation. And it's to avoid having, you know, rogue agents or prosecutors kind of go everywhere. But what it means is that things happen very methodically. If, if they happen, they need to be justified. And so this is hardwired into prosecutors, into investigation, into investigators. And once that they have gone beyond that stage into where they are now in, with certain people, where indict, where people, where charges have been filed, um, you know, a trial date has been set. Uh, people have pleaded guilty. There are outstanding subpoenas. Uh, evidence has been collected from Michael Cohen's hotel and office and have been logged with the court. I mean, all of these things, you know, many people are now involved and trying to suppress that evidence for any, you know, period of time, it will see the light of day. And whoever was responsible for trying to prevent those things from moving forward, if there was a legitimate basis, if there was evidence of criminal activity that should have been brought to its conclusion, um, will be exposed. So <laughs> I think, you know, I I don't know that many people would be willing to put themselves on the line with a paper trail like that. 
Um, and then I think there are just some things that are just going to, you know, get be rolling, like I said, in the court system and et cetera. Should Donald Trump testify if asked, when asked? Am I wearing my, if you were my client hat, or I, am I wearing my FBI hat? I was wondering if you were going to ask, am I wearing my Alan Dershowitz hat or, or my FBI hat? Right. Uh, yeah, so I guess, you know, both. Both. If, if he were your client, and, and maybe in terms of uh, what's best for the country. Yes. So if he were my client, I wouldn't let Mueller get anywhere near him. You know, he's already, I think he, he his biggest liability, in my opinion, is the obstruction of justice case. Mm. And the obstruction of justice case in particular rests on what his motive was in firing Comey. So what he has to say about that can actually be incredibly consequential to making that a solid case or a not so solid case. And it's, you know, in that in that situation, you just don't want your client to talk. Beyond that, the president has a difficult relationship with the truth. And, you know, I, I think he can get into additional kinds of trouble by talking uh, to Mueller. And I think that if he were my client, I think a better strategy for him, rather than firing people all over the place or pardoning them, is to really push the limits of the Constitution and just force Mueller to half, you know, I don't think this is good for the country. So this is not what I'll say when I put on my other hat. But yeah. from his point of view, I would say I'm the president. You can't make me sit down. And I, I'm innocent. I'm the president. Like, make me. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, draw it out and, and get go there and, and challenge that. If, and um, I think that when he if he were to observe the rules, but hang his hat on kind of the Constitution, it looks, you know, he's he's able to get more. He, he seems more legitimate, even if you completely disagree with him, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. than if he tries to go outside of the rules and just off the rails and like try to fi- fire Mueller, for example. Um, if I were his lawyer, that's what I would do is I would make the most creative constitutional arguments that I could and and throw obstacles in Mueller's path that way rather than doing something so blunt <laughs> as trying yeah. to and obvious as trying to fire these people. And before you get to the best for our country point of view, although I think, you know, we can probably divine what that argument would be, Mm -hmm. your interpretation of this Supreme Court, if it did go that direction, how do you view this Supreme Court as how they would balance um, executive branch privileges versus, uh, you know, requirements brought uh, in front of a court? I think the president would not be on solid ground here. Mm. Uh, So, you know, he has the precedent of Nixon working against him. Yep. Um, And even of Clinton, you know, that was in a kind of a civil context. But, um, you know, he can't use his the power of his office to shield an investigation into criminal activity. Um, And that's that's what Nixon was about. That was about uh, evidence. Um, that, those are about the tapes, but I think it would apply equally to the president's own testimony. Um, and so I, I don't. I think it would be an uphill battle, and I think even this court would not be so inclined to depart, you know, in in great in a great way from that precedent um, and from that principle. Um, I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah, but it does. 
raise a little bit the question if the guidance would be to make me and to push things towards the court, it then, you know, it then makes me wonder, well, is that, you know, how would that play out? And is that, you know, do we think that this is a, a court or that the precedents um, are helpful to the head of the executive branch or, as you point out, from uh, Nixon and the United States and uh, uh, the Clinton and the private matters um, where he was ruled that he did have to, uh, um, you know, give testimony or, or you know, be deposed, um, you know, went, went against him. I think it just makes him look like he's contesting it on matter on a matter of law, God, or, as as opposed to you know yep. or constitutional policy or something. As opposed to, please don't uncover what I've got to hide in this yeah. investigation, which is what it looks like. Um, you know when he when he kind of does his Donkey Kong <laughs> path, um, towards you know trying to stop the investigation. That, so that's my point. I don't know that he would end up in a necessarily better place. But it gives him extra time, and I think it makes him at least look like he's observing the parameters of our constitutional system of government. Is the attorney-client privilege dead in our country? <laughs> uh, no, it is not. It is alive and well. Why do you ask? <laughs> <laughs> just you know, it just came to me. I don't know. We we can move on if there's no issue there. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's not. I, and I'm happy to talk about privilege uh, more. Yes, please. Yeah. So. Attorney-client privilege is between an attorney and their client. Uh, the client holds the privilege, and the communications are privileged when it's an attorney who is representing them or advising them on a particular matter. So you just can't like walk around talking to attorneys and think that what you've said to them will be secret. Um, they have to be, you know, representing you. Uh, you can waive the privilege even inadvertently, if you disclose the communication to a third party, uh, that includes including a third party on a written communication on an email, for example, or having somebody else in the room. And then there are exceptions. Um, the one that I think might be most relevant at this point in time is what's called the crime fraud exception, which means yes. that you can't use your attorney to facilitate or cover up the commission of a crime. And the easiest way to describe this is if you killed somebody, you can confess that to your attorney and that is covered by the privilege. However, you can't ask your attorney to help you hide the body or dispose of it. No, no privilege um, there. There's no privilege there. <laughs> so, you know, it's when past events, you know, if you're, if you're talking about them for the purposes of getting advice, those, those can be privileged. But if, if, you're trying to engage the attorney in the commission of a crime, a new crime that would no longer be uh, considered privileged. And and what do you speculate? And this is speculation, um, unless, by the way, you happen to know something inside, in which case, please feel free to break that news here. What do you speculate would be the size of the suspected crime that would inspire the FBI and the Southern District of New York to raid Michael Cohn's offices? You know, wow, I I really can't speculate at this point, right? Because what, I mean, the obvious ones that come to me are bank fraud and campaign finance violations. But it is such an extraordinary step to take. And they must already have so much, they must have had so much already in their possessions about something very serious for it to not only be approved within the Department of Justice, but be approved by a judge. And so just for your listeners, 
um, you know, a search warrant is typically it comes much later in an investigation in the FBI because it's it's considered to be a very intrusive uh, technique, investigative technique. So you have to have a full investigation open on someone that there that you have evidence that, you know, a crime has been committed and you're you're actually investigating it. At that point, you can go to um, obtain a search warrant uh, within that. There are certain categories of people, including lawyers, journalists, clergy, who kind of get an extra bubble of protection because they are engaging in various kinds of protected activity. It might be First Amendment activity. In the case of a lawyer, there's, you know, if it's something that is concerning their client in particular, that's privileged. And and the Department of Justice is very loath to get get anywhere near that because it can Mm. it can complicate their case. Right. Obviously. And Um, so you have, there's a lot of extra vetting that goes there. And then as you can imagine, uh, once you get in front of a judge, a judge is going to look at that and say, you know, especially if it's a lawyer for the United uh, president of the United States. So, um, if it's bank fraud and campaign finance violations, if those are the violations, then they are happening at a big, then it's something at a very big scale. Um, or it's also connected to other things that Mueller is investigating, uh, you know, I, I can't speculate. I don't want to like. Yeah. No, but um, you know, we know. I, I think probably other kinds of financial um crimes is my guess. Yeah. Well, we're uh, we're all we're all waiting for uh, the <laughs> filing to get uh, to, you know unsealed or, or yes. whatever the term and 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 get to read that. So, what are we not focusing on enough? And and it's a strange to even ask that because we're, uh, you know, talking or watching or reading about all of this 24 seven. Um, and it's kind of relentless, uh, for, you know, for many of us, you know, mm-hmm. even those who follow it, but is there something as you're kind of participating in the conversations or watching the conversations and the analysis where, where you say, wait, wait a minute, you know, now make sure to watch this. This is an aspect of the whole discussion of of the investigation and the potential constitutional crises, and, and it's a where we might be missing a key point. Uh, is there something that that stands out to you? Yeah, I think that when we get so caught up in the criminality um, and whether mm. you know what is the crime, what's going to be charged, what you know, all of these things, we're missing the fact that. The criminal charges that come out of this are simply slivers of what is ultimately a counterintelligence investigation. And that investigation is about how Russia attacked our democracy. And that happened invisibly. That's what's being trying to be uncovered now by Mueller's team. And not every aspect of that is going to cross the line into criminal behavior. Spies are pretty smart and they're able to use a nation's laws and the gaps in its laws against them. And, you know, there, so, so there are entire swaths of this that we aren't necessarily, we don't know yet really, but we also are curious to know about because we think that all that matters is what's charged. And the way I've described it, I was a counterintelligence agent in the FBI, is that, you know, it's like watching a mo- movie with only like four scenes of a movie and then trying to understand what the movie was about. Um, you know, you're not going yeah. to. Everybody will have different interpretations and they'll say, well, what was this character doing? And so I think what we want to know, and this is what was brilliant, more than Cohen and Trump and all of these people, I would say keep an eye out for the indictments 
that Mueller brings against Russians. Because what he's doing is he is using those indictments to tell that counterintelligence story. And there's going to be several different stories. There is because they were the active measures that Russia was engaging in here were happening on many fronts. Um, There's the social media one where he's already charged those 13 Russians and three companies. There is the hacking front. There is the, you know, interference in voting machines front. Um, you know, th- there's the potential placement of people in the campaign, uh, whether it was known to members of the ca- other members of the campaign or not. You know, people like Manafort and Carter Page. I mean, what were they doing? They had, you know, clear ties to Russian intelligence. And I think we want to know what that story was because it'll help us put everything together. And it and some of it may not implicate in criminal ways uh, Americans or people in the campaign, but we should be concerned. I mean, I don't know about you, but like, um, you know, I trust our justice system. I don't trust the Russians. So I want to know what they did and I want it to be exposed and for them to, you know, for the whole world to see um, exactly what they did here. Ten times out of ten, I take our justice system uh, over that, no doubt. (laughs) Um, Are you actively teaching a national security law class this semester? I am. I am. And how many times have you had to tear up the syllabus? (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, actually, it's it's useful because, as you know from law school, it's Socratic method. So it's great to have new hypotheticals that are testing the boundaries of uh, of of the material. And in fact, hypotheticals year, that that just two months ago would have been absurd, not hypothetical. Right. right? You never would have raised them. I mean, I will say I almost took torture out of the syllabus thinking, well, Mm. we've already gone through that and I kept it in. And now, you know, I think we now have, again, an interesting conversation coming up about that. the CIA, new CIA. Yeah, uh, but, you know, he follows along on my syllabus, you know, like (laughs) when I taught it last year, the first day, like that was when the travel ban came down and we were talking about presidential power. So um, in some ways, Trump, I don't know, maybe he's seen my syllabus and wants to help me out or something. Or, or secretly auditing and you haven't noticed? <laughs> right. Hey, you, who's that kid in the back of the class? Right? They can't see you. No, it's actually Stephen Miller who's secretly ah, auditing, so he very, can draft those uh, executive orders. Very good. Orders. Very right. good. Um, Asha, just to close out, I know I, I joked at the you know top about how cliched your story you know is and, and, and it isn't, and in truth, it, there's probably no one who has cut the same unique path that you have, and it's a, a pretty inspiring story. Um, where did you grow up? Did, did you always have a sense of what you wanted to do? You said your parents hoped you would become a doctor. Did you ever want to become a doctor? I never wanted to become a doctor. I actually wanted to be an actress ah. when I was younger, which is weird. I mean, I don't know where I got that from, but I, I and I ended up doing a lot of theater in college and kind of had this, you know, uh, amateur theater, you know, hobby background um, also. Uh, and then at some point I switched to wanting to be a lawyer and that was, I wanted to be a prosecutor. That was just kind of, I don't know, in my mind, I thought putting away bad guys would be awesome. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's not bad. And I guess in the spectrum of, uh, actress on one side and doctor on the (laughs) other side, parents were satisfied with lawyer or they would have been satisfied with, uh, acting as well, I assume. No, I think, well, you know, they, yeah, I think I think lawyer was good until I went to the FBI. The mm. the carrying a gun and the bulletproof vest stuff like kind of traumatized them a little bit. Um and then I assured them that, you know, mainly I was dealing with diplomats and unlikely that there was going to be a shootout in New York. 
Well, ac- excellent. I'm, I'm glad there wasn't. And uh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for the conversation and your reputation yeah. for really clearly explaining complex stuff. Um, it, it's it's clear why, why that's part of uh, your reputation. Thanks. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. That was my conversation with Asha Rangaba. My thanks to Asha for the conversation and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon. Thank you.